Good morning everyone, this is Sir Buckley, this is the Art of Faces and this is the Blackwater episode. I know you've been waiting for it, as have I, as has Aziz and Ashea and we're here, finally, the big one. Dun, 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 dun. Before we get to that, a large thank you to everyone again who has been uh, not only buying my uh, Lovely Castles book but talking about it and complimenting and some people have been giving feedback. I know Aziz mentioned on the live stream yesterday and I even saw that some of you in the chat were talking about it as well so that was lovely for me to see. Really very much appreciated. Uh, you might have seen I tweeted out yesterday that I finally opened my own copy after it being left on my kitchen table for three days because I didn't quite have the balls to open it. But uh, I have now, and I haven't let go of my own copy since, if I'm honest with you. There was a little bit of tears. All right, fine. There was a lot of tears, and uh, yes, I'm quite happy to have it in my hand, finally, after all this time. But I won't go on about that too much today. Almost no castles talk today in this episode, if I'm honest with you, apart from, obviously, the Red Keep. But even then, it's not really about the Red Keep. It's about the river and the ships and the wildfire and all the fighting also calf at one point so yes this is other faces scraps and scrolls clash of kings part 10 our penultimate episode and clearly the biggest in terms of importantly one of the largest far-reaching events in all the song of ice and fire you can make the argument it is even larger than the red wedding or anything else uh, if you'd like to definitely the largest military conflict we get at least so far perhaps the battle of ice or the battle of fire will outdo it but so far the Battle of Blackwater is the big one, and we have reached it finally. We had all our prep in the coming weeks of Sansa and Tyrion, but now we're really here. It is genuinely the battle. So why don't I tell you which chapters we are specifically looking at today, just to give you a fresh reminder. We begin with Davos Free. If you remember, this is obviously Davos's viewpoint of the battle as they sail, him and Stannis's fleet sail into the river itself, and uh, then the wildfire kicks off. That is followed by Tyrion 13. This is Tyrion defending the walls, defending the gate. Sandor again, he does not want any part of it. And yes, Tyrion is headed into battle. Then we switch viewpoints completely. We go to Sansa 6. And we got a little hint of this last week. It's Sansa in the ballroom. It's Sansa in Cersei. It's Sansa, in a lot of ways, getting more information than Tyrion or Davos, funnily enough, because she's obviously not in the midst of battle and has a, a larger overview. From there we switch back to Tyrion, Tyrion 14, and this is really the thick of battle, this is where everything's just kind of going wrong, the river's burning, there's a bridge of boats, Tyrion's right in the thick of it, and it all goes wrong there. Then one more time, back to Sansa 7, back into the ballroom, Cersei's had enough, she scarpers, Sansa has to kind of patch everything together as a 12 year old girl, or 13 year old girl, and then she meets up with Sandok again for the final time. And because that is all incredibly intense and, and wearying, we head far, far off to Calf to settle down for our last chapter. Daenerys 5, we wave goodbye to Calf. We say hello to Sir Barry and Strong Belwas, and we just have a little bit of a breather. So let's head right into it then. A lot to get through, as Aziz got to on, on last night's live stream. I'm talking to her from Monday morning, this one recording at least. And let me say again, thank you to Aziz and Asher for getting to see many of my notes. But I do, there's so much to talk about in this battle that I do still have some for you. So don't worry about that. So we begin with Davos 3. And the first part of this chapter is basically Davos giving us the overview, the bird's eye view of what's happening, how Stannis is approaching this, and basically how uh, it might go wrong. Because Davos is not in charge. It's Sir Imri Florent, who I know Aziz spoke about a lot. And let's talk about the viewpoint here, because we've had... 
battles witnessed by Catelyn, and we've had battles experienced by Tyrion so far in the series overall I'm talking about. And that's all well and good, but now we have a lowborn man who's truly been thrust into the game, played by those who they at least consider themselves a class above him. Davos is, to Sir Emily Florent and many other of Stannis' lords, a nobody. He's just someone who somehow has risen through the ranks, but really he doesn't count because he doesn't have the right last name. So Davos has risen high, but he still has the viewpoint of the common man and the common soldier and all these people who are about to experience something very nasty indeed. And like Catelyn, Davos has children directly involved in the battle, but obviously he is there as well on the front lines. Then again, like Tyrion, he also has to worry about himself at all times because he is in a lot of danger, as we see straight away in this chapter. So we're kind of mixing viewpoints and getting something completely new here. Speaking of Sir Imri Florin, who really does dominate the first couple of pages of Davos' chap, it seems an odd choice for Stannis to have gifted the fleet to Imri, given that he's basically kept appointing people based on their abilities, Davos obviously being the prime example. And although Davos hasn't got his big, big promotion yet to hand to the king, Stannis seems like a guy who knows who to um, who to promote and who to put in the best place to succeed but not this time for him to be pressured into promoting a family member which is what it seems has happened now at this most crucial time seems a bit out of character now to be fair perhaps a florent isn't a terrible choice imri is aware of the wildfire house florent does sit beside the honey wine down in the reach so maybe there's some background of, uh, of sailing and seafaring not enough obviously and definitely not as much as davos but there we go beaver way Imri does not seem well-versed enough for a position of this importance at this crucial step. Even if you're not going to go with Davos, doesn't Stannis have a spare Valerian he can put there instead? I think it's Monford Valerian. He'd surely be better than Imri, wouldn't he? It's especially weird given that only Alistair Florent is actually with Stannis at this point. Solis and Axel, they're both back on Dragonstone currently. They're both waiting. So you wouldn't think it would have been a, a case of multiple Florents kind of bearing down on him and, and forcing him into this choice if you can even force Stannis into such a choice. Maybe he just generally believe in reason the man to do it. I, who knows? But all this does allow for highlighting of one of Davos's main characteristics, his knowing better, especially in this naval arena, his knowing better than others who are above him because of their surname or title. Imri does not know better than Davos just because he's called Florent. Davos does, not because of his name, but because of what he's been through. And he started the book showing that, he finishes the book like that. So that's a real good bookend to Davos's arc. Obviously, this is the final Davos chapter. So we had the Catelyn knockout last week. We've got the last Davos and we also have the last Daenerys today as well. I think as he's mentioned, uh, I'd been wondering what would have happened if Imri had made a dash for the South Bank and just put the transport of troops above everything else, not even bothered really engaging with the fleet. At the very least, it may have lessened the damage done by the wildfire, possibly, if you're on one of the coasts, maybe not. It really depends on timing there. But it seems that Imri forgets that the battle is essentially won so long as you get the men across the river. That is the crucial part. That's what Tyrion knows as well. That's why he makes this wildfire thing. The river battle doesn't really matter. It's can those men on the south bank land on the north bank, because if they do, it's essentially over. And like I say, Tyrion knows that. He knows the walls aren't strong enough. He knows the men won't hold. And obviously Sir Imri forgets that point. It's true, the royal fleet needs to be defended against to a certain point, even though they have lesser numbers. But it really does seem that the primary goal has been moved to secondary when it should be the other way around. And far be it from me to claim any specific military knowledge, but it seems that the river thins the further away from the bay it gets. Maybe not a great degree, but at least somewhat. So Davos makes numerous references to the fact that Imri has sacrificed speed. What if that speed had been used to get Stannis' warships upstream as fast as possible, bottleneck the royal fleet, 
and then just leave a huge gap behind them for the transport ships to get the footmen across the river. If that happens, the wildfire still does massive damage to those warships at the front, but if the ships are bunched together, the Royal Fleet is likely taken up completely as well, and it's just a matter of transport ships avoiding patches of wildfire. Now that's me just speculating. Who am I to say really? I don't really know what I'm talking about here. But uh, that just seems to me one possibility that Imri obviously did not consider. But let's move on from him. Let's talk about Stannis himself. Given that Melisandre and some of the other Royal Lights are back on Dragonstone at this point, it may well have been a good idea for Stannis to bust out his original Baratheon banner instead of his new Flaming Heart version. That would have acted as a more concrete threat to the, the poor rule of the Lannisters, I think, instead of the Strangers banner. If the people of King's Landing see what they think is Robert and Renly's, the Baratheon's banner that they've been accustomed to for the last decade plus, that just makes it a little bit easier for them to break and go over than having to think that this is someone completely new. And it also feeds into what we discussed last week about the small folk finally fearing whatever Stannis's religious views are. But of course, Stannis is likely too proud to make such a concession. He doesn't want to share that victory with the ghosts of Robert or Renly. He wants it Stannis Baratheon and no one else. Now that's all in the planning phase. Eventually, the ships, they do meet. So Imri takes these ships forwards to the Royal Fleet and Battle is joined. And Davos, he is a part of this. Davos, he's not a fighting man as Aziz noted, but he goes to it, he does his job. And it only takes a paragraph for Davos and his men to overrun and conquer an enemy ship. I forget specifically which one it is. Now, rereaders know that we're going to have to wait all the way until Victorian chapters to get this kind of sea battle action again. And really, are there two? <laughs> are there any two POVs more different than Davos and Victorian in their approach? And yet they have this similarity between them. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the ship names I noted in this chapter. So first, there's a Lord Stefan. A ship is called Lord Stefan. And that seems like a bit of a bad idea to name a ship that, considering, you know what happened to Lord Stefan Varathian, but there you go. There's also a, a Prince Aemon. Davos thinks of it as old, slow Prince Aemon. I assume this is named after the Dragon Knight, Aemon the Dragon Knight. But it's fun that the old, slow part of it now represents Maester Aemon up at the wall. I don't know if we ever find out what the fate of Prince Aemon is, but it would be cool if it had sunk instead of burned in the wildfire, in the same way that Maester Aemon, unfortunately, ends up in a, a cask instead of Melisandre's flames. Okay, that's Davos free. We're now on to Tyrion 13. And that begins with the reaction to the wildfire that's just happened on the river. That Tyrion is obviously still at the walls at this point and is still more concerned about those who have landed on the north bank and are starting to attack the gates. I'm sure this has been brought up before by those who believe Tyrion to be a secret Targaryen. I don't personally. But to their credit, this is probably the largest explosion slash fire slash wildfire thing seen since the days of actual living dragons it's this or summer hall for largest fires i would guess but this certainly has a much larger death toll and it is kind of fitting that Tyrion creates this massive fire thing considering his childhood obsession with dragons but i think that's probably where the link ends now as so much as with so much of this book we get a real Tyrion is tywin moment as we realize that Tyrion willingly sacrificed hundreds if not thousands of his own men and to a supremely awful death, no less, to gain an advantage in battle. He knew that the royal fleet was going to burn. He knew the sailors that were serving him were going to burn or drown. Luckily, we have Tyrion's POV, and we can not only see the hints of guilt in his thoughts, but his viewpoint on the eventual goal. He knew he had to sacrifice those men to, to win, to hopefully save everyone else. Unfortunately, the in-world characters don't get his POV thoughts, and they only see the connection between father and son, a la 
Jenna Lannister much later on when she's making that comparison. Just to complement what we've just said in the Davos chapters, there's a, a Tyrion quote here. So it says, Worse, a good part of the south wing of the enemy's first two battle lines had been well upstream of the Inferno when the Hulks went up. So that just lends a little bit of evidence to the fact that Simmer Emery should have rushed forward because some did and they avoided wildfire. So if a lot of them had, then you're looking pretty. But there we go, let's leave Sir Emery again. Let's move on to Sandwalk again instead. He's a big part of this chapter. And I had not picked up in previous rereads that the wound Sandor takes seems quite specifically placed to really induce an emotional state. He's got a cut on his brow, there's blood pouring down his face, and I think it's pouring down the, the scarred, burned bit of his face. So you'd think... This is bringing back specific memories, and I think we spoke about that again last week. Tyrion and the Hound have shared relatively few scenes in this book, but have been constant mirrors to each other thanks to Sansa's POV, as they both serve as her true knights, and they're the two most physically deformed that she comes across. And yet they're complete physical opposites still. Even though they both have these deformities, they are obviously not alike in terms of shape and size. So here these two have to face off, and it must be complimented to Tyrion that he does not back down where men twice his size would have easily quailed in front of the hound. Also worth noting that for all of his bravado about a love of killing and all that that he's always going on about, Sandor's never actually been in any situation close to this. Maybe he was present for the sack of King's Landing, but that is quite a stretch from cutting down running small folk to fighting an actual army as the world around you is set on fire. That is not really the same thing, is it? And he's probably never really taken a serious wound, so it's, it's new experiences all around for Sandor, and he does obviously not know how to handle it. Once Sandor is kind of uh, removing himself, he's not going back out there, Tyrion is forced into action. He's forced to ride out with his sortie, and uh, he's hoping that they're with him at this point. So it's worth noting that from the histories we have so far, Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire, fighting on the front lines really isn't a requirement of the Hand of the King. There are exceptions, there are those that surely would have loved to have been on the front line, but for the most part, Hands of the King wouldn't dare place themselves on the front line because they're, they're not fighters. And Tyrion, technically, is not a fighter, but he does what is needed, suitability be damned, so we do have to respect him for that. Alright, let's switch viewpoints, let's go inside. Now, back within the walls, Sansa 6, we're back in the ballroom, we're back with Cersei and we're back with all the wine that's just what you need in this situation. So Clash of Kings is very much a book of comparisons and here we finally get the two queen figures facing off against each other with Sansa and Cersei hearing the same information about the beginning of looting and things basically starting to fall apart but only one of them cares to be honest. Cersei doesn't give a second's thought to her assembled ladies with them there in Maegor's Holdfast let alone the small folk outside in the city. Her mind is focused solely on Joffrey which does kind of make this comparable to Catelyn because obviously when she was on the sidelines for the Whispering Wood, she was thinking about Rob. Of course, mothers think about their sons, that's to be expected. But Cersei is also thinking about the move she's expecting Tyrion to make on Joffrey's health or Joffrey's protection. Even though we're still in the good news section of the chapter so far, so that it's going to get worse and Cersei's already starting to crack. In terms of head-to-head uh, -head for queen-type figures or leading lady-type figures, Sansa will eventually come up against Lysa too in the Eyrie, but this is her best chapter for Sansa versus Cersei. Now let's just double back a minute and talk about that Joffrey versus Rob comparison, because Rob actually does get involved and fight fiercely for the life of his fellow men. Joffrey does nothing but play with his catapults and basically enjoy the excuse to torture people. He's just happy to be left alone and be allowed to do what he wants for once. Yet this is the propaganda that will survive that Joffrey led his city to victory, 
much to any reader's annoyance, I'm sure. And that kind of tails back right to the beginning of Game of Thrones when Joffrey and Rob were practicing in the yard under Sir Roderick and not liking each other, but only one of them is a real fighter, as we know, definitely. But when you combine that uh, that propaganda with Cersei's dismissal of the what we've just seen as Tyrion's real bravery, we all start to get real wound up, really annoyed about Cersei. Let's top that with a quote. Command them to return to their homes, the Queen said. If they won't go, have our crossbowmen kill a few. Ah, so that's where Joffrey gets it from. He, that's where he's getting the idea. Crossbows solve all our problems, as Tyrion will find out later. In Sansa's chapter last week, we spoke about how frustrating it is for Cersei to be here in Maegor's, essentially devoid of any power other than being important enough to receive the occasional update. That's really the only nod she's getting. She overthrew Robert over a number of years to get rid of this exact feeling, and we can see exactly how she feels about it when she begins insulting all the other women and dispelling their actual worth, because really, deep down, that is how she feels about herself, and I'm sure a lot of people have spoken about Cersei's kind of inner hatred and certainly hatred of her of her gender is a very complex topic. But that, combined with all the alcohol and her concerns about Tyrion, are what pushes her to order a retreat for Joffrey, nearly undoing all of Tyrion's work and damning the city in one simple stroke. We've just been gifted Tyrion's view of how hard he's working to keep this whole thing together, and all Cersei's got to do is one sentence, and uh, it starts to unravel. Now I've got a, a little list of quotes here to go through, because there's quite a few in this chapter that are good. Let's begin with, So perhaps you had best pray again, Sansa, and for a different outcome. The Starks will have no joy from the fall of House Lannister. So that's obviously that's near the end of the chapter, that Cersei just, I don't know, giving Sansa an extra kick like, for some reason, because she's drunk by this point. As discussed earlier on, there is seem seemingly no victory for Sansa in this battle. George again toys with what the reader wants. How can we root for Cersei as someone who has shown she doesn't mind at all that other women and servants are being killed and raped? But then if we don't root for Cersei, then Sansa is surely doomed. So round and round we turn there. I wonder if Cersei's last resort was for her, Sansa, and potentially Tyrion to die to possibly preempt the prophecy and save her children, if we're going to buy into the fact that uh, Cersei ordered Mandon Moore to kill Tyrion. Who knows about that? But I think maybe she thought at least one option was if she takes her, Sansa, and Tyrion out of the equation, the prophecy can't come true, and her children will be saved. Maybe not Joffrey, because if all three of those are dying, there's pretty no much no chance for Joffrey, but at least maybe saves Tommen and Marcella. That might be the extreme Cersei has been pushed to now. Another Cersei quote here. Stannis may take the city and he may take the throne, but I will not suffer him to judge me. And to me that's very reminiscent of the by what right does the wolf judge the lion type quote. That's just a very Lannister quote that even with Stannis obviously displaying his power and ability here, Cersei does not see him as equal to her. No one is equal to her and the Lannisters in their eyes. Yet more Cersei quotes. We're getting a real insight here into what she's thinking. We were so much alike. I could never understand why they treated us so differently. Jamie learned to fight with sword and lance and mace, while I was taught to smile and sing and please. This whole passage, it's more than that, just a single quote there. The whole passage is one of the best for understanding the inner workings of Cersei and why she's become who she is. And it does really does drum up some sympathy for her, which isn't easy, to be fair. Most of all, I like it because it reminds me so much of Aya. If I had been born of a boy twin, that's exactly what she would have been thinking. But thank the gods, I had Ned as a father, not Tywin. I think we discussed that back in Game of Thrones, how different that could have been. Last quote then. Of late, Sir Osmond had taken Sandor Clegane's place by Joffrey's side. And Sansa heard the women at the wa washing well saying he was as strong as the hound, only younger and faster. 
So this is part of uh, Sir Osmond being there with Lancel and giving some info and Sansa thinking about him. I wonder if this is an example of Littlefinger planting a rumour to circulate and take place in important minds and that's how he's kind of got the Kettle Blacks in. We know he does that uh, down in um, Bitterbridge with the Tyrells. He explains that to Sansa later. So that could be well at, at work here as well. I'm just also wondering, what is Sansa doing at a washing well? Does she just kind of frequent them? Not sure. And finally for this chapter, like I quickly mentioned earlier, I hadn't noticed on previous reads how often Cersei insists that she is clear-headed in this chapter, which is very obviously drunk, so that's just another clear sign of her alcoholism. Right, but now we're going back outside, back out the walls to the real carnage. Everything's fallen apart. Tyrion is outside, he's running down the gates, he's, he's saving the city. So there's no other way to put it, really. So this is Tyrion 14 now. And, yeah, this is the thick of the battle. Let me read you this. A head loomed the king's gate and a surging mob of soldiers wrestling with a huge ram, a shaft of black oak with an iron head. And this goes to show how close Stannis was to victory, despite all of Tyrion's victories early on with the wildfire and everything else. Even with all that, this ram nearly ends the entire battle. If you want to glance at your maps, even though the King's Gate is far from the Red Keep, this is the, the, the gate that this ram is attacking, by the way, the King's Gate. Even though it's far from the Red Keep, it's still west, the, the actual castle. Breaking through would have allowed Stannis' men to attack the gold cloaks all along the river walls. And assumedly, they would have broken bad because they break bad without any gates falling. So if you see one getting opened and streams of Baratheon men and Stormlord men all coming in, I think the gold cloaks just absolutely scarper so that would then allow all the other gates to fall and anyone else landing across the river could just basically walk in so even if the red keep can squirrel itself away in the corner king's landing is an open chest for stannis at that point luckily Tyrion personally puts an end to the attempt and like i say he is just literally saving the city now i do wonder as he's charging down the river bank i wonder if Tyrion is using a brand style or an adjusted saddle throughout of all, all of this i don't think it's ever mentioned specifically but you would think so given that it's made a a big deal of in Game of Thrones. On initial read, there's not much reason to pay attention to Mandon Moore. You don't know that he's going to be, become such an important character at the end of this. He's been noted nearly as little as Preston Greenfield. He's just he's just there. No one really cares. There's nothing that stands out about him. But for rereaders, through Tyrion's descriptions, they stand out much more this time, especially about Mandon Moore being unreadable. That is mentioned several times, and obviously that's because we're not supposed to see what's coming. Now, Aziz got to my notes on the Halfman stuff, so I'll skip past that. But if that had happened and Tyrion had uh, really bought into that moment, he might have been able to deal with Joffrey and Cersei and Tywin on much more equal footing if, if all this stuff with Madame Moore hadn't happened at the end. As it is, that was all just a brief glimpse, and that makes the eventual loss of everything, which only comes about because he tries to keep going with the defending and the glory on the British ships. If he had just stopped let the bridge collapse or something then he might have had a much better time later on as it is we know he does not so it's just much harsher to read this part of the book or this part of the chapter now given that we've just had a chapter in which Cersei is majorly pissed she is not a man slash Jamie this is Tyrion's close experience he gets to being Jamie. Jamie is the only person he's truly admired his whole life and we should not dismiss that Tyrion has been denied the usual markers of what the Westerosi term masculinity. He doesn't get to be tall and muscular or run fast or wield a sword well. But here, that's all suddenly coming at him with a bang. And this is really his greatest ever moments within those kind of, quote, manly parameters. we got some more quotes for this one as well. Death is all around you, but their swords move so slowly you can dance through them laughing. So that's actually Tyrion remembering a Jamie quote. 
I wonder if Jamie was inspired by the smiling knight to come up with that about dancing through them while you laugh. Could well be. Another Tyrion quote. The war shrank to the size of his eye slit. Now this line is wonderful, not just part of a whole passage that really makes the fighting intimate and, and personal and wonderfully described, but also it really ties Tyrion to Davos as he says something similar when he has to put on his, um, his helm, his pot helm and his vision being limited. So it just goes to show us it's the same for people on both sides. It's just tying that experience together for men of any station, any side in this battle. The spinning boat and the repeated water submersion once Tyrion gets on the on the bridge, the constant threat of death, they all throw Tyrion out of his battle fever with a cold slap. It's a truly horrific scene that really, it must have changed Tyrion and thousands of others that were involved forever. His brain becomes so scrambled that there's basically no chance of him making sense of the Tyrell slash Tywin charge that is actually happening now and is winning the battle as we speak. Tyrion, just, he can't even register that that's what, what's going on because this bridge is, <laughs> is a mess. So once they're on the bridge, Tyrion somehow survives and then is nearly assassinated by Mandon Moore. I've always wondered about the specific wording of Mandon Moore's orders because he, he really could have just not helped Tyrion up when he's about to drown. He could have just left him on the bridge, waited to see if it collapsed and drowned anyway. But apparently he had the order to literally kill him himself and uh, he goes for it until Pod intervenes. And finally, to wrap up this chapter, the last Tyrion chapter of today, I've got one last quote and it is, Who else would save him if not his brother? So this is after Mandon Moore's made a swipe and chopped off Tyrion's nose. Tyrion's down and bleeding and uh, he, sees, he sees what he doesn't know is Pod saving him. He thinks it's Jamie. So even that here and now, as he did back in the Eyrie when he was up for trial by combat, Tyrion believes Jamie is the only one who can be his saviour. He likely believes that Jamie is the only one who would bother to save him in the first place. Both Cersei and Tyrion are so focused on their brother during this battle. Okay, one chapter left for Blackwater purposes. It's back to Sansa, back to Maegor's hold fast. To be honest, my favourite part of this chapter is the what happens with Lancel, but I know Aziz got to that, so uh, we'll leave that with him. Just one quick note on it is this quote. No, Lancel was so angry he forgot to keep his voice down. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Lancel's one moment of defiance against House Lannister. After years of obeying Tywin and doing whatever Cersei or Tyrion ordered, and he has <laughs> this one with one no moment, uh, not that it works out very well for him. It's tough to remember that when Lancel and Osney make their report to for first-time readers, it really does seem like the jig is up. As far as we knew, the riverfront was completely lost to Stannis' full force, the bridge is broken, Tyrion's dead for all we know, and the news of gold cloaks killing their officers seemed like a likely conclusion to the tensions that had been brewing throughout this whole book, and you know, a sensible sequel to the mob attack for the bread riots, whatever you want to call them. It is only as rereaders that we can re-examine their report and see the evidence of Tywin and the Tyrells arriving in the nick of time. Let's have a look at one of a part of Sir Osmond's report. He says, The riverside's theirs. They're ramming at the King's Gate again, and Sir Lancel's right. Your men are deserting the walls and killing their own officers. So, Osney doesn't make the same guesses about infighting on the north bank as he does at the south, so I guess Tywin's own thrust was second for whatever reason. The Tyrells must have got there first. So whether that's geography or him wanting to send the Tyrells in first just in case, likely he wanted to know if Stannis is already in the walls, as that is a very different assault if so. It could also be true that during, during Tyrion's time on the bridge, Stannis was able to land more men, or the shattered men that Tyrion had got before regrouped without anyone to fight them under the gates. 
and they really were on the verge of breaking through with the gold cloaks running away. It certainly would have been fitting for all of Tyrion's hard-won efforts to be done to be undone by Cersei's orders, as we discussed earlier. Unfortunately, Tyrion's POV is elsewhere by that point, he's not on the bridge, so we never really find out the exact circumstances of, of Tyrion arriving and charging down the attackers on the gates. And let's switch to Sansa here, because she has a real champion moment in this chapter. I know Aziz got to the most part of that, where basically Cersei does a runner and just leaves them all there to fear for their deaths and for their families, and Sansa steps up. So this is our first welcome to Sansa the Queen, as she proceeds to do everything that Cersei didn't. So how many times in this book have we discussed what nobles or kings or knights owe? Sansa knows what a queen owes, and she does her best to deliver it here. She's seen the how not to in Cersei, and she's seen the how to with her father and her mother. So she's really channeling both Ned and Catelyn here. Let me read you this quote. Sansa went to Sir Lancel and knelt beside him. His wound was bleeding afresh where the queen had struck him. So Sansa actually managed to one-up herself. Not only is she a, a 12 or 13 year old, calming a room full of adults and yeah, do, do, taking on those queenly responsibilities, not only is she doing that, she is taking pains to look after someone who is a relation of her tormentors, that he is part of the bad side. But I guess this is the influence of the lesson learning Tyrion is not like the others. So she knows Lancel, while he definitely has his faults and has done his crimes, he is not as bad as Cersei and Joffrey, certainly. In my opinion, this moment absolutely does not get its due acclaim as a major achievement of Sansa's. And I think uh, Aziz took up what else I had to say about that. So let's zoom forward from Sansa leaving the ballroom, running away from Ill and Pain. Her job is done. She returns to her chambers up in the tower and Sandok again is there I mean, I think Aziz got to my first note about that as well so let me tell you I've always taken Sandor's leaving of his white cloak as him just wanting to be out of the establishment and stop attending it's a symbol that he is done with Joffrey and the regime of King's Landing but this time I think there's an added element that the cloak in theory is supposed to be white and pure and innocent which Sansa obviously perfectly represents here not just with her song but the, she is eventually thankfully not raped or anything like that by Sandor so it is that symbol of innocence that he gifts to Sansa that's how I'm taking it this way around it's also fairly fitting that even at this hour we can't have Sandor again without Sir Dontos they just seem to be together in almost every chapter through Sansa's arc in this book so we get the immediate switch between Sandor's intense emotions like I said as he's went through my notes on that part we get that switch from that to Dontos essentially bouncing around the room telling the story of the arrival of Tywin and the Tyrells yapping on about how great it is to be a knight when we've just heard the exact opposite from Sandor. And of course, Dontos doesn't actually say Tywin and the Tyrells, he says Renly's ghost, because the biggest marker of the Tyrells is that they understand propaganda probably better than anyone else, even better than the Lannisters, definitely better than Cersei. In this moment, the Renly's ghost thing is nonsensical to first-time readers, we don't know what it means, but to rereaders, it is the essential start of the era of the Rose in King's Landing and something that will carry us right through to the end of Dance of Dragons at the time of the Tyrells. And that is the Blackwater, ladies and gentlemen. That is the intense five chapters of the actual battle itself. We probably need a time out. We need a bit of a breather. We could go all the way up to John, but why not go even further? Let's head all the way east, all the way past Davos and the Burning River, out past Salador San, right across Essos to Carf and Daenerys V. So to me, this chapter stands out a bit and not in the best way. We go from the rush and the importance of the Blackwater chapters. Now we get what is, to me, a, a little bit of a bloated chapter that really serves as a prologue to Danny's storm arc, which is good in a way because we definitely want to move away from her clash arc, or I do anyway. 
but it takes its sweet time and get into its good stuff, I think. The recap of the Rhaegar prophecy also stands out to me as a bit odd. I suppose it is useful for first-time readers who want a bit of confirmation for what actually happened in the House of the Undying. And to be fair, at the time of publishing, we hadn't all had years of examining every word and burying them into our brains, so this was all fairly new back then. But what itches the wrong way is Daenerys being focused on it here and then not further along her arc. She kind of forgets the Rhaegar part of it. She focuses more on the treasons, the, four, the free treasons. That's the one that sticks with her through the coming books. And I guess that proves that people tend towards the paranoia much more easily than the, the more positive or the more interesting prophecies. I also have a lot of thoughts on whether her ass assessment of what she saw is actually what she saw or if there's an element of the unreliable narrator here. I have spoken about that before, about is that Rhaegar, what is the timing, what she thinks is, is it actually Elia? Stuff like that, I won't go into that here, but there's definitely, not everything is as concrete as it seems. In, I but do away with prophecies, let's go to what actually happens in this chapter. So the focus of Danny's return to Dothraki apparel really lines up with the idea that Calf is now done with her and she is now done with Calf. She's done with like the opulence and the extravagance. She's back to normal, back to her Dothraki clothes, because that's who she really is. The threat of the warlocks falls a bit short as they seem to essentially leave Daenerys alone after this chapter. We could argue that that is because they eventually run into Euron and they get themselves captured, but that capture and torture by him doesn't ex exactly scream of renewed powers thanks to the dragons that people theorise here. Speaking of, I would happily read a little anthology of all these strange and mysterious things happening in Calf that Zaro tells us about. He has this big paragraph saying uh, the candles are burning again and the, the one woman goes mad because she can't wear clothes and all these kind of weird freaky things that are, he, I'm assuming he's putting down to Daenerys' magic. And like I said, the standouts are obviously the glass candles as they will return to us in feasts so we get these little connections these little seeds that George is planting in the same way Zaro is just kind of tired out now he takes one last swing for the fences for, to get Daenerys because you know why not but it seems his heart is just not in it and he's basically just happy for this ordeal to be over just as much as we are though I do very much enjoy Daenerys standing her ground and asking for a third of the ships in the world that is a cool moment we can sum up Zaro as the embodiment of Calf once again he wants a dragon because owning something cool is the top priority of all the people with calf. And if he can't have it, he really has very little else to offer. So that's the end of him for now anyway. So we finally rid ourselves of Zaro. We get out of calf onto the dockside and Daenerys. Again, there's a little bit of uh, bloated writing in my opinion about looking for ships and looking around the markets. But then these two people turn up at the exact right time. Let me read you a quote. Sir Jorah had been shoved off his feet by the eunuch and... I just take a little bit of personal pleasure in seeing Sir Barry knock Jorah on his ass two seconds after meeting him. So we've just seen in the previous chapters for today, King's Landing have their own saviours coming in from the west, and so does Danny in Belwas, Barristan, and the three ships that are sent to her. Although it's not addressed here, she also has the tie of Illyro and the life that seems so far away now so long ago, because Viserys is dead, Drogo's dead, and she has come into her own. So that arranged marriage where she was basically just sold... That seems very far away to Danny now, so a lot's happened since then, most prominently the dragons. So finally, this symbol is calling her away from the strange adventure in the Red Waste and Calf and calling her back to the larger civilised world. At this point, three readers might have thought that that meant going back to the western three cities and then on to Westeros. But even her eventual destination of Slaver's Bay is a step back into the main stage of that part of the world anyway, rather than this dusty, isolated corner that she's occupied through Clash of Kings. It's almost like she's been in the sin bin for Clash of Kings, where she's just 
not nothing really counts and now she's going to go back out onto the wider world and we hear a lot about what uh, Ilio's been up to and we finally get him back in the mix because he's been missing for a long time and a lot of this links up with facts that we will learn later in dance for example it seems that uh, Griff and young Griff were kind of released from the Pentos area around this time probably in the hope that young Griff could sail down sail down south meet up with Daenerys as she is rounding Savanessos and maybe speeding up Illyro's plans to probably get the two married and get young Griff a dragon of his own. Many have spoken on Illyro and Varys's mistakes of not including human emotion or the human element in their plans, and that is precisely what happens here, because Barristan and Balwas don't have any particular stake in Daenerys going to Pentos, and Barristan especially has his own agenda of figuring out if Daenerys has that touch of the mad Targaryen thing. So the deal was never really struck solid, and they don't make Daenerys say she's definitely going to Pentos or anything like that. They just give her the ships and let her do what she wants. Lucky for us, because that now moves her on. Because as far as she's concerned, they're hers, and she can begin her storm arc, which is good, good, good news for us. We're looking forward to that. Finally for this chapter, finally for today's episode, I'll have to admit this final note. After nearly five years of reading this these books, it's taken me until this reread to re- realise that Arston, which is the name Barristan uses, it's just part of the word Barristan. You just remove three letters and you get Arston there. Never realised that before. I have to admit and come clean to you guys. And that is the Blackwater episode. That is part 11 of 12. We have one final episode remaining for Clash of Kings. And then we're done. And it's on to Storm of Swords. How about that? Obviously a very, very important chunk of chapters in this. Really momentous. And we're going to see the effects not only in Storm, but definitely in feast and also through dance of dragons and i'm sure on through winds of winter and dream of spring as well this is not the kind of thing uh, that's easily forgotten not by our main characters not by the thousands and thousands of unknown characters involved not for anyone because it's a, a pretty horrible time battles i think you can probably guess aren't nice anyway but when there's wildfire involved and people drowning and then people turning on each other and everything getting confused that bridge scene especially it's just horrible and uh, yeah like i say the effects at last so this is one of the the real tent poles of a song of ice and fire that we've had the privilege to cover today so thank you for joining me for going through those chapters it's been a pleasure as always thank you to aziz and ashaya and their live stream that was good fun to listen to as well and we will look forward to seeing you next week for the final part of clash of kings yeah imagine that so fast we're going through so fast it seems to me anyway Okay, thank you everybody. Thank you again for your support with the Castles book. That's much appreciated. And thank you for listening and getting in touch and everything else. Keep sharing, keep uh, rating anything you like. And like, yeah, get in touch. Love to hear from you. Other than that, have a good week and we'll see you for the final part of Clash of Kings next time.